May be seated, and uh, I hope to get into the text of Romans eight today from John one fourteen. I, I believe there's a bridge between the incarnation of Christ and the incarnation. You'll have to wait for the explanation of this. The incarnation of the children of God with the Holy Spirit, and then the eternal redemption that is coming for us and glorification. Through that process, and so uh, we've been reading Romans one—I mean Romans eight—as we've been teaching in John one fourteen to get to where we are today for uh, re- for reasons there. And uh, I want to read to you another account of the incarnation, just uh, for context reasons, and to help you think, help me think together about what it means for God to be born in the flesh and how that was announced to. Uh, his own earthly parents. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly, talking of Mary, because she was found to be with child. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to make to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That's the incarnation. That's John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Matthew says, the angel came to Joseph and said, the baby in your, wife, your future wife's womb is from no earthly man, it is the conception of the Holy Spirit. Okay? He has, the Holy Spirit has placed in your wife God. Listen to what, how, how we know it's God. She will bear a son. You shall call His name Jesus. Old Testament name, Hebrew name, Joshua. Okay? Same name. For... Listen to the reason we will call His name Jesus. For He will save His people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you shall call that baby's name Emmanuel. God is with us. You shall call His name, today we're going to look at, you shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And that's where we can tie in Romans 8. That's where the connection comes practically between our indwelt uh, Son of God in the flesh, God in the flesh, Jesus, and you and I indwelt with the Holy Spirit waiting for the glorification that will be ours through Him. That's where we can make a connection and we hope to do that today. I want to review a little here. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we looked last week and said that He tabernacled with us. He pitched His tent with us, and Jesus in that is co-equal with God. Jesus, the Son of God, is equal with God in the following ways according to the Scripture. He's eternal, 
He's omnipresent. He's almighty. He's immutable. He's omniscient. He is incomprehensible, but yet comprehending all things. He is infinitely good and holy. He is the creator, the preserver, and the governor of everything. He is the one who searches the, the hearts of men. So Jesus in the scripture is shown to be all of these things. And so is God the Father. So there's an equality there. Jesus humbled himself and came in the form of a man. Even the form of a servant willing to die the humble and humiliating death of a cross. But he is still God. He did not give up his godness. In him it pleased the Father that all the fullness of God should dwell. So he's still fully God. He's just in the flesh. So we don't want to give away his God nature. You can't, if you take Jesus and divide from him his divine nature, he's not Jesus. He is not Emmanuel with us. Okay, God with us. And if you take his humanity away, we're going to see today, if you take his humanity and just simply make him God projecting some human nature, but not really in the human flesh, then you take away the ability of Him to be Jesus, God who saves His people from their sin. You have to have both. It's a marriage that cannot be separated. Jesus, we looked at last week, is co-equal with God. Jesus today we want to see is human. Jesus is human. This is probably the one we're more uncomfortable with um, than any of the other attributes of, of Jesus. We're okay with Him being God. We're difficult to speak of Him as Really human. So I want to point out some places where Scripture clearly points to Him as a human. Very human. Uh, and you write these down. Again, we're going to move rather quickly. Luke uh, 2, 40 through 52. Luke 2, 40 through 52. is a passage where the humanity of Jesus is held out before us. And the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After these days, three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is. A great text to point to the humanity of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, still lived in a home where His mother and His father were uh, over Him in authority. 
He shows this in this text. He's there with the scribes and the Pharisees asking questions, receiving answers, and then his mother shows up as any mother is prone to do when she's desperate, kind of fussing. What do you mean doing this to me and your daddy? We've been looking for you desperately. We thought you were dead, maybe. We thought somebody had kidnapped you. And I've had these aha moments with my mom when I was a little kid. Do you remember any moments like that? You know, the time I was hiding in the rack of clothes in the department store. And she's running around by this point frantically hollering my name. And I think it's... Now, this is the mischievous in a child. I thought it was funny. But my mom's reaction and Jesus' mom's reaction, very similar. She's scared to death. Jesus, unlike me, was not being mischievous. Jesus was being obedient to the higher power, His Father in heaven. But the, the example of his mother and how she mothered him, the, the family relationship is no different than the relationship I had with my mother. And then it says that Jesus, being there, explains why he's there, but then what does he do? Does he stay there and say, now y'all go on back to Nazareth, I'm going to do my thing. That's not what the Bible says. No, he respectfully submits to the authority of his mother and his father. He gets on the bandwagon and they go back to Nazareth. And then he grows under their authority, submissively to them, grows in wisdom and stature and standing with God, the Father, and with man. And that is the same for any of us. We grow in stature and in knowledge and in our standing with our fellow men and with God. Jesus did all of those things like we do. And so we see that He, whether we like it or don't like it, He is very, very human. He even had to obey His earthly parents and honor them as every child did in the commands of the Lord in the law of God. He suffered hunger. He was thirsty. He had exposure. He suffered exposure. He was cold. He was hot. He faced these things like we do. He had persecution. He was ridiculed. He was rejected. I think about His rejection. You know, in some of our situations where we share the gospel, we put ourselves on the line for someone else in any relationship and we're cut off from them or we're, you know, in a sense, separated from them or rejected by them. And then I think about Jesus. He's no different. Do you know His own brothers rejected Him? His own brothers, faced with the fact of Him being the Savior, said, this is just our brother. He's from Nazareth like we are. He's the son of Joseph like we are. Who is he to, to say he is the Messiah? And so they rejected him, his own brother. So he faced rejection, not unlike we do. He faced disappointment. How he must have been disappointed as he grew around his friends and in his village to see the disobedience to the law and to his own heavenly father. He was disappointed. He faced failure in some regard uh, humanly. He, you know, he wasn't the best at everything. He wasn't the best at everything. We seem to make Him the supreme being even in His humanness. But His human nature, it's, it is not beyond Him to not be the best at something in His human nature, in an activity He would undertake. He had to learn how to be a carpenter by His own Father's instruction. Do you think the first time He drove a nail, He drove it perfectly like a carpenter that had been a carpenter for 40 or 50 years? Probably not, or if you believe he was a stonemason, then he didn't cut the stone perfectly the way his father could do. He had to learn these things. In some sense, he faced frustration with his inability to do everything the way his earthly father did it in their trade or in their home. He had to learn 
uh, skills like others did. He was normally socialized like all other children are socialized through the Hebrew culture with their family, with their community, with the temple. He was socialized the same way all of the other children in Nazareth were socialized. And so he grew in stature. He grew in knowledge. He grew in standing with other men and standing with his heavenly father. Add to this the grief that he faced as he had to live with sinful men and he was not sinful. There's an area we do not share with him in his humanity because even in his humanness, he was perfect. Have you ever been in a situation where everyone else around you is living a life of of utter sin and degradation? And even though you're not perfect, it hurts to be in that situation. It's uncomfortable to be in that situation. I, I think about uh, when I used to go to New Orleans with friends of mine. You know, we would always walk around in the French Quarter. We would always, inevitably, somebody was the first time there had to go down uh, the famous uh, street there and, uh, and see it. You know, they had to see it for themselves. And I remember going uh, with them on one occasion. And just the sin that was present made me very uncomfortable. It made, me, it made me, not that I thought I was better, but I was just out of place. Now, I, I'm not, I am nowhere close to being perfect. And yet Jesus is perfect, and yet He's subjected to live with people who are imperfect and who are disobedient. And so He has to put up with that in His flesh. Without sinning, He has to, he, he, without any sin, He faced sin every day and the temptations of sin. So he, his uh, humanness is expressed to us, and I think there are some things we can find common with Christ in his flesh, and there's some things in his flesh that we do not understand. One of those would be given us in Matthew 27, 46, at his death. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are words coming from Jesus' flesh, because in the Spirit, his Father is not separated from him. In the Spirit, His Father and He are one, united completely. But in the flesh, He has received all of the sin of all of His people and now He is separated from His Father in the flesh. His Father is pouring out wrath on Him and so the loving the loving and uh, enduring relationship of the Father-Son there in the nature of the human nature is, is severed for that period of time. And He cries out in anguish, And from his flesh, painfully, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet at the same time, he's able to forgive a repentant sinner. You you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He's able to take care and comfort his disciple who's there at the cross. He even honors his mother as he dies, giving her someone to take care of her. He says, Mary, now this is your son, speaking of John. And John, this is now your mother. He, in his human nature, still had to deal with all of the uh, grief of being separated from his father in the flesh. And yet, at the same time, he put others' needs in front of himself and he's caring for his mother in his most dire and and, uh, worst time on this earth. He's put the needs of other people above himself. My mother needs someone to care for her. John needs to be comforted. This sinner needs to be forgiven. He's still giving of himself, even in his worst moment or in his most trial, biggest trial. We must remember that at the foot of the cross, uh, or at, at the foot, Christ is firmly rooted in the earth, 
but He transcends above the earth and all creation to the right hand of the Father. As man, according to Genesis 3.15, I'm sure you'll get there in the study of Genesis, the seed of the woman has his heel bruised by the serpent. But in his God nature, he crushes the head of the serpent. So as a man, he's bruised and he faces that pain, but yet as God, he crushes the serpent. And so he, that tension is inside of him. As man, he is the king, he the kings of the earth in Psalm 2, 2. Uh, the kings of the earth gather against him in his humanity. Yet by verse 12, all of the world worships him as divine royalty. And so there is a, a two natures inside this one man, Jesus Christ. As a man, he appears in Psalm 110, verse 7, as a traveler refreshed by the brook water. Being thirsty and needing water to quench his thirst. And yet at the beginning in, in, in Psalm 110.1, He is the God, King of kings, victorious over all things. In Isaiah 9.6, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, His humanity. But in the end of chapter 9, it says, His name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, we have His divinity. In Isaiah 11, verse 1, it says that He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. That's His humanity. But in verse 4, it's clear that He will strike the earth with the rod from His mouth and bring righteousness upon the earth. That's His God nature. Isaiah 53, 2, Christ is said to be like a tender plant with no majesty or beauty that we should want Him or desire Him. But as God, in that same chapter, Following in verses 3 and 4, all of the transgressions are laid on Him and He pays the price for all of His people. Mark, uh, I mean John 6.38, Jesus says, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of my Father. And so we see in His human nature, He like us must obey the Father. He like us must put His will aside and do the will of His Father. And And I will take it to this level. Jesus says that the miracles He does on the earth are not by His power, but by the power of the Father. So any great work He did was not His work. It was the work of God the Father. That's why He says at the tomb of Lazarus, praying, Father, I pray not for my sake, but for their sake, He prayed for the glory of God to be revealed through the resurrection of Lazarus. It was God's power who raised Lazarus. It was God's power who raised Christ. It was God's, the Father's power who healed the blind, made the lame uh, walk, gave hearing to the deaf man, cleansed the leper. It was God the Father. And He was in submission to God the Father, asking God to do these great and mighty works in His flesh. He's asking submittedly to the Father. Mark 13, 32. Of that day and hour, no man knows, speaking of the return of Christ, nor the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father alone knows the day. Now, that's not true of Jesus any longer. Jesus knows when He will return today. What is this statement? In context, this statement is made of Christ on the earth. Jesus is saying, and now I do not know when I will return the second time. That's the Father's knowledge. In my humanity, I don't know those things. But now He knows when He will return. Now He knows when all things will be brought to an end. But in His humanity, He is really human. He doesn't know this truth. Only God the Father knows it. John fourteen twenty eight. I go to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. 
Yet in other places we see he's equal with the Father. So what is he saying when he says he's greater than me? In my humanity, in that period here on the earth, in 33 years, he is greater than me. I am submitted fully to him. I am in the flesh. He is in no flesh. He is greater. I am less. And so he, in this way, identifies with human nature and is in the human nature. So he's God. We saw that last week. He's human. So what does that mean for me? Well, that's where I really want to spend some time. Jesus condescends. Jesus stoops down. I was talking with Rashad. This really, he said, helped him. Jesus, as Peter says, stooped down and then lifted me up. Jesus descended so I could ascend. Jesus went down so I could come up. And that's where I want to end the text of John 1.14 because this marriage of these truths is, I think, it's impacted my life greatly. And I hope it does you also. Listen closely. The, the uh, exalted status of Jesus Christ goes without question. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Excuse me. The exalted status of the believer in Jesus Christ cannot be questioned. Listen to these passages. 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Do you hear it? We are changed into that same image, glory to glory. Romans 8, 17, we are joint heirs with Him who is the firstborn among many brethren. 2 Peter 1, 4. Now this one, think, pause and think about what Peter's describing here about the believer. We are ourselves partakers of divine nature. Do you hear these words? We are like Him in His image. We are partakers of God's nature. Does that make you a little uneasy? It makes me real uneasy. It really shook me to my core to begin to think about these things. John 17, 22, that they may be one even as we are one. How can we be one with the other brothers on the earth? Because we are like God the Father, God the Son. We will be like that with one another because we have the same image. We are changed into a likeness. Revelation 3.21 We shall share His throne. It's Jesus' throne, but we're going to share it in eternity. Last one, Ephesians 3.19 That you might be filled even to all the fullness of God. Paul's praying about a church in Ephesus and he says, I'm praying all these things that you might be filled to all the fullness of God. Does that describe you? Does that describe me? I mean, think about it. You, you read it, you can, anybody stand and say, I am the fullness of God. If you just, you know, you almost get that. If you just look at this side of the equation, you almost get that impression. Like if we were, I was really a believer, I could stand up and I, they'd look at me and I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate, even imitate Christ. Why can he make this statement? Imitate me. What does he mean? We've been exalted on the account of Jesus Christ. Do we not truly believe that because of Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, we are the very righteousness of God? Do we believe that or do we not believe it? That's the question. Then why do we say and always live as if we are hopelessly sinners bound to failure and bound to sin? 
Oh, that we could believe the truth that because He descended, He stooped down and lifted us up. Now through faith, we have been given... Now through faith in Him, we have been given an exalted status as a believer. How can the Scripture speak so highly of Christians? Because in my life, practically, I struggle with this. The answer is found in our relationship with Jesus Christ. I want you to look at two, two places with me. First, 2 Peter 1.4. Flip to 2 Peter 1.4. I read 2 Peter 1.4 earlier, a clip out of it. I want to read the whole thing. And I'm bringing it here. I'm bringing it to you. Um, as real as I know, this is a difficult subject. But... It's very impactful. By which He has granted to us His precious and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers of divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. It is correct theologically to say this, that in Christ, by His Holy Spirit, we have become partakers or one who shares in divine nature. By Him, through the Holy Spirit, we have become partakers in the divine nature. That is the status of any believer on this earth. Do you see how it should change your thinking? I'm hopeless. I can't help it. I am who I am. I'm just going to always be a sinner. That's all I am. I can't help it. Excuse myself. It's just the way I was born. It's just my personality. All these excuses we use. And Peter says, forget all of that. Through Jesus Christ, you are a partaker of divine nature and you have been set free from sin. So go in and live in that divine nature that you've been given. Romans 8.29. This one more popular, more uh, easy, I think, to digest. So I put it at the end of the message so I could focus in on Romans 8 because uh, this passage, I've been reading it every day, several times, trying to understand all of its truth. And it's bigger than one message, but... I'm going to condense it so maybe you can put shoe leather to it this week. For those, verse, eight, verse 29, for those who He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now He, the ones He foreknew, He predestined to be like Him. Do you see that? In the image of His Son. No longer just humans but partakers in divine nature. That's what He's predestined us to be. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers, God predestined that everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ will be conformed into His image. This is so that Christ may be the firstborn, the preeminent one among all the believers. He might be the one that is unique among all of us. The ultimate end of the creation is that you that the redeemed, as the believers, as the Christians, we will take great pleasure and joy in Jesus Christ and that our actions will be conformed into His image day by day into the works of Jesus Christ. In this way, we are partaking in the divine nature. We're exalted because He was humbled. What does it mean? What's the key then? I'm saying some very difficult things, honestly. Difficult for me. How can I be a partaker? Practically, what does that mean? How is it possible? I'm not divine. I'm just a man. I am a sinner. I am fallen. How could I ever be what this Bible says I should be? Back up with me now, and I want to piece by piece put the thing together, I hope, for you in Romans 8. Look, Romans 8, verse 1. There is that. Now, put the parameter around it. 6. Romans 6. 
If we had time, we'd read it all. Romans 6. So shall we, you know, continue in sin so that grace may abound? Certainly not. Never. May it never be. Why? Because we've been baptized with Him into death. We've been resurrected to a new life. And now perfection is the standard. Be perfect. Romans 7. What does Paul say? The things I want to do to meet the standard, I never do them. But I always find myself doing what I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man am I. But he doesn't stop there. What does he say? I've been saved by Jesus Christ. He's setting us up for Romans 8. Then he says Romans 8. Therefore, because he said there's a standard. Everybody says, I can't meet the standard. I'm like Paul. He says, verse 8, 1 of chapter 8, this is a great verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. I can't meet the standard. And Jesus says, I did. I'm a wretched sinner. And Jesus said, I was not on your behalf. There is now no condemnation. Why? Because we are the righteousness of God in Christ. And when He looks at us, He sees His Son, the image of glory being changed to glory. Look what it says. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You're free, He says. We've been reading about Christian liberty. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now I want to stop there. He, so He put Jesus in the likeness of a man. He put Him in the likeness of sinful man. That's important distinguishing. He was a man, but he was in the likeness of sinful man. He was not like us in every way. He was like us in every way except a sinful nature. He didn't have that part. And so, we will be like him in every way except we will never be God. Okay? Two pillars under this bridge. Jesus became like us except he's not us. He's not a sinner. And we will become like him looking like Him, acting like Him, speaking like Him through all of eternity, but we will never be Him. Separation. There is still distinguishing in the Scripture. And then, why did He become in the flesh? Why was it necessary? Because He could not be Jesus. He could not be the Savior of His people unless He carried our flesh to the cross and died in our place. And so we've been set free from sin, Paul says. And then he continues, to set the mind of the flesh, to set, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile, it's an enemy to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to the law. For who are, for those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You'll never meet the standard. I could never meet the standard in our flesh. But we don't set our mind on the flesh, Paul says. We set it on the spirit. And now he's going to tell us how the law is fulfilled. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, Romans 7, the body's still dead, the body still wants to sin, the body still longs after the things of the flesh, 
Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, inside this sinful man, there is freedom not to sin. And so now I'm set free. I can fulfill the standard. How? By the spirit of God. I can never do it, but he can do it in me and through me and for me on my behalf. He can do it. And I can be free from sin and am free from sin. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. It's a present statement. He's going to not only raise us in the end, but He's going to give you life today in the Spirit of God, in the Spirit of Christ. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you and now gives you life to be obedient to God the Father. He continues, heirs with Christ. So what does that mean? That, okay, Jesus came in the flesh so that sin might be crucified, so that I might be set free in the Spirit, so the Spirit might live in me that raised Christ from the dead. It might give me life today in the body. Even though my body is sinful, my spirit is obedient. So what does that mean? So brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body... You will live. You live. You have eternal life. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He is the Son of God. We are sons of God. He is the preeminent one, unique, unlike us in many ways. But we are like Him in many ways. We are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so we have it here. Sanctification is this. It is you have been justified and you are glorified and in between you are growing day by day in grace. You're learning to live by grace, walk in grace, speak in grace, Act in grace. Not perfect. Far from it. But the Spirit in me is working me, making me, conforming me. I received an email this week that even applies to this from somebody in the congregation. I think it was Katie Waters in Malachi. Passage in Malachi 3. Uh, I believe it's verse 12 where it says that He's like a refiner of silver. God, He sticks us in the fire and He refines us like a silversmith. What does that mean? And she put in there, it means... That a silversmith sits by the fire, sticking his silver in the hottest part of the fire so that the impurities might burn away. And how does he know when the impurities are burned away? He can see his own reflection in the silver. That's the process of Romans 8. He has put us in the fire so that we might suffer with Christ in this life and learn to be like Him and be conformed in His image so that at the glorification, He will look into us a piece of silver and see His own reflection and give glory. To himself through us. And so we have the ability and we are given the responsibility to live as Christ lived and to be in the suffering of Christ so that we might be glorified with him. And then this great ending to the chapter. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Why? Why is the suffering, Paul, not worthy to be counted the same as the glory we will one day see when I suffer and my child dies, when I suffer and I lose everything, my job is gone, my wealth is gone, I'm on debtor's row. Why is that not worth considering it equal with the glory? Because 
This suffering leads to an ultimate glorification of God in the Spirit, through the Spirit, for all of eternity, praise and honor to His name. And so he says, I wait for the creation is waiting, eagerly longing for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage and decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So all of creation is waiting for God to finish His work in us. And so we have the end that we will be glorified with Him, that we are made into His image in verse 29. And He says, And those in verse 30 whom He predestined, He also called and those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. And so now we are set free. We have been justified. We are being glorified even in the moment. We are being sanctified in the glorified state and body. And we will reign and rule with Him, Jesus Christ, throughout eternity. How does this impact me as a Christian? Well, First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, But I am... What I am, by the grace of God. You see, you have, and I can no longer say, because we are saved, we can no longer say, I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace. We've got to put the period in there. I am a sinner. Period. It's true. But I am saved by grace. And that is the truth also. And where these two truths meet is in this body of sin filled with the Holy Spirit. The, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh so that we might partake in the divine nature. The Word, the eternal God, put Himself in a body so one day I can live in something other than this fallen body. The Son of God, the very God, Jehovah, lived with sinners, died on a cross for sinners so that He might be the firstborn, the first, the preeminent one, the unique one among a whole tribe, a whole nation, a whole brotherhood, a whole family of brothers. You see the connection? We are not God, but we are in His image. And so what excuse do we have? All our excuses have been taken away, haven't they? I can't say I'm just a sinner because the Spirit of God dwells in me. I can no longer use the excuse of the way I was born for my sin. It's not my environment. It's not anything else. I have the opportunity every day to wake up submitted to the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and do the deeds of the Spirit and in that be conformed into the image of Christ. So why not? Why do I not do this? Well... I think the key goes back to uh, Romans 8 where Paul says in verse 18, I count these present sufferings not worthy to be compared to the glory we shall see. The reality is I love this world. I love this life more than I love being changed into the image of Christ. I love being accepted by my fellow man more than I love being accepted and approved by my father. I want to fit in to conform to the world so that and forgetting the transformation which is available to me through the Spirit and through His Word. And so to conform is easy. We're swimming downstream. 
I'm asking you, I'm calling you and me to swim upstream, to be transformed, to go back and, and into Christ, into grace, and live in that grace in such a way that at the end, he might be like the silversmith looking at us and seeing himself. Let's pray. Father, difficult uh, passages lead to life-changing truths and um, truly we could spend months on these passages. And if you're willing, Lord, one day we probably will. But I pray that an image of you has been presented that you are God and you are man. And now we are man and we have the opportunity to partake in your nature through your Son and His Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would be partakers now of that nature, that we would begin now to live in the Spirit and through the Spirit and the Spirit through us so that all of our works, as Paul said, might, um, might be refined and brought out as praise to your name. And so that our lives might be by your grace, only through your grace. And that we might begin to view ourselves, Lord, as you view us. Sinners, but clothed in your righteousness. Saved by your grace. Set on fire by the Holy Spirit to burn and work and give ourselves completely to partaking in your nature. Lord, at the end of the day, Lord, we ask that you would have your glory in us. And uh, we know that the fullness of that is when we delight in you and when we delight in obeying you and following you. And so help us to do that this week. I pray this in your son's name and in our Lord's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.